Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Provincial State of Mind with me, Jeff Neville, alongside Tom Savage and Owen Harrison, as always. This is a podcast that focuses completely on the four provincial teams in regards to both the URC and European competitions. We discuss what happened the previous weekend and what we can expect from each province in their upcoming games. So, Tom, a lot of news coming from Munster on Tuesday, not your average week after a big win in Europe, was it? No, look, it's, it's never boring covering Munster rugby, that's for sure. And uh, I thought the biggest biggest news I'd have this week would be great win on Sunday against Wasps, but uh, that turned out not to be the case. Big news, uh, surprising news. We'll get to that later. But it was, yeah, certainly uh, uh, it ended up being a much busier start to the week than what I was expecting anyway. Yeah, I don't think anybody uh, tuning in Tuesday evening on Twitter would have expected the kind of the amount of tweets they would have seen. But uh, own four out of four in Europe for the provinces, I think everyone kind of enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, brilliant weekend of rugby uh, with the positivity of the Autumn Internationals really flowing into the Champions Cup now for the Irish provinces and saw some um, fantastic individual performances across all four teams, really. I think, you know, Leinster kicked it off with their expected win against Bath. Then you had Ulster upsetting Claremont away in the set of France. Connacht, well, they beat Stade Francais and the Elements, really, in the sports ground. And then Munster really showed the, the young guns they, they really showed their class in Coventry. So there's there's lots to get through this evening. Yeah, I don't think I don't think any of us were four for four in our predictions last week, but sure, look, that's what makes it interesting. Uh, as always, folks, we'll go alphabetically through the team, so we'll jump in with Connacht straight away. Um, a big 36-9 win at home to Stade Francais, a bonus point win, of course. Uh, six tries they ran in in the end. Um, pretty convincing performance, to be honest with you. And given, you know, possession was actually shared 50-50, it was a pretty big win from Connacht. Uh, Tom, what did you make of it? I thought Connacht were very impressive. Um, yeah, conditions were a bit dodgy in the sports ground. I mean, they always are, but that's not a like that. That that shouldn't really be seen as a as a, as a down on Connacht anymore. Like uh, I thought they were really really impressive here. Like and, you know, I think there was a lot made of Stade Francais before the game that supposedly they weren't looking up for it in the uh, in the the warm up. Um, but honestly, like I, I thought Stade started quite well. But Connacht just had too much for them. You know, I think you look at the way that Connacht built into their game, so much mobility. Uh, it, like it, I know everybody has a fitness-based game. It's not really that much of a thing now anymore because everybody's fit, really. But I just felt the pace they kept in the game really hurt Stad after a while. And like you would imagine the areas where Stad would be strong and look to try and catch Connacht, it, it, that worked for a while. But after a while, I think Connacht just outpaced them, really. And, and I, I think had a game that really was kind of kryptonite for Stad as, as the longer it went on. And I think, you know, with, with French teams, especially with a team like Stad, who, you know, are, are on a bit of a downswing and are maybe slightly starting to come out of it, you're just going to have to get them thinking about the hotel as quickly as possible. And I think I look at that first half late on, uh, you could see Stad, some of a couple of those lads were starting to think about the robes, maybe about the trip back to the plane. Um, and if from there, there was only going to be one winner. I just thought Connacht were very, very impressive. Um, and like did what I what I kind of expected them to do really, and and to to put down a, a fairly impressive wing with some really impressive individual performances. Looking at the response to friends' uh, questions around belief and leadership last week, on you know he he questioned if they had that belief in leadership or the belief they could win against Leinster, and then they come out against Stad. What do you make of their belief this week? Well, I, I think they've answered Andy Friend's questions on it. You know, I think if you look back to the Leinster game, it was around the sort of just either side of half time that they really, they lost it. And if you look at sort of what they did against Stad, they scored Wooden's try just before half time. 
put them in on a, on a good footing. But I think the, the scoreboard was slightly flattering to them because Connacht were in a, a dogfight, really. It sort of was 19-6 and then went to 99. So the, the first sort of 30 minutes of the second half really had it in a dogfight. And it was sort of next score the winner, uh, almost, to get to get or to see who would come back into the game. If if Stad scored at that point, they were right back in it and it would have got their, their gander up and for the last sort of 10 minutes or so, whereas Connacht actually got three tries in the last 10 minutes to really close out the game and, and put a shine on the scoreboard. But friend asked them for a uh, question, their belief and their leadership, and he looked for the, them to stay in the battle. And I think for that 30-minute period after halftime, they really stayed there. It was played a lot between the two 22s. And there was lots of tactical kicking and it was good stuff from Carty and that. But I thought the overall, there was the likes, the, the back row were just so impressive. And even without the likes of Aki, who, who they would rely on traditionally as, as one of those big leaders and um, sort of go forward guys um, in the team, I thought they performed just so, so well and just ground Stad out of it and put a real shine on then in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, big thing for me was certainly uh, their set piece. Um, their lineout was fantastic. You know, they, they had 19 in total during the game and they won all 19 of them. Now, with the quality of ball, they would have got off all of them. I'm not saying it was excellent, but they got the ball back. And, you know, the higher the league you go or the higher the standard you go, the lineout just gets so, so important because, like, when you look at scrums compared to lineouts, there's far fewer scrums than there are lineouts in the game, especially since the, the goal line dropouts come in now as well. So, if you if you don't have a lineout, you're not winning the game really. And uh, you know, to win nineteen out of nineteen, I I felt it was unbelievable. But at the same time, um, they did concede fourteen penalties, which I think is going to be a big worry going away to Tigers next week. Um, you know, I I think if they give away fourteen penalties against a team who are flying like the Tigers at the moment, they're going to be in trouble. But you mentioned the back row there, and um, Keen Prendergast for me was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, the back row in total had 19 passes between them. Um, just allowed, I suppose, Connacht to play the kind of game they wanted to. But, you know, there was news then as well that uh, Papa Lee, he's leaving in the summer to to join Sammy Ireland at Breve. Tom, there's still questions around him playing against power teams and big packs and a pack that plays but still needs to win from football consistently is what you need. But how would you see Connacht dealing with that? Uh, that's, that's going to be a tough guy to replace in one way. Like you would look at Abraham Papa as a guy who has shown great glimpses during individual games. I remember he was really impressive. I think it was against either Leinster or Ulster in one of those interpros where he had a really, really strong game off the bench, I feel, and, and turned things for, for, for Connacht. But discipline was an issue. Um, but again, I think when you look at the larger thing, you look at who Connacht have lost in the last uh, two seasons, they've lost Quinn Roo and losing Abraham Papa now. And that's with, you know, was it uh, Foyinga they lost as well, and another big physical presence for them. Uh, Bundy Aki is a guy who will stick out as being a guy who's got the, the right kind of physical profile. They've got a couple of other guys in that level as well, but this is a collision sport. And uh, I think when you look at Connacht, they certainly do play a style of rugby that is expansive. It's based a lot on transitions, about kicking to generate those, those transitions. And in uh, Jack Harty, they're one of the best going in, in generating that type of game. So at the moment, like the the the, the pack they had, especially against Stad, quite work, work for them quite well. But I think what Tigers will do is, is similar to what Leinster did and, and what Leinster do when they put out their, 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 their full team, we'll say, or close to it against Connacht, which is to, to make the game quite tight and to make it uh, basically played out in a phone box. And when Leinster do that and start winning those collisions, it's very, very difficult to live with them. Uh, you know, Connacht struggled to do that last time out. And again, Stad, 
tried to do that, but I, I think conditions made it actually more difficult for them to play that type of game. I, I think for Connacht, I think they certainly do have to replace Pat Bailey. Not necessarily like for like, maybe it might take two guys to replace him, uh, but they do need guys who can come in and help them win collisions because you can only defy gravity and, and with, with collisions being gravity in this sport, you can only de- you know defy it for so long before eventually it comes back to bite you. The most consistent teams in at the top end of this sport win collisions first and you can talk about other stuff afterwards like your your attacking structures and, and your set piece to an extent but if you're not winning collisions around the field you're going to struggle to to impact at the top end and you'll always fluctuate up and down collisions give you consistency so i think uh connacht while pat bailey might not be a massive loss on, on the face of it i think they do need to get somebody in who's got that type of profile maybe he's not even a he might not even be a back row could be another midfielder could be a power winger could be a, a second row or, you know, it could be somebody it doesn't have to be a number eight. Uh, they, they do need guys who can help them win collisions. And while Papi Ely is, you know, being a bit of a liability to an extent at times with his discipline, I think they will miss what he brings. Next up, they have Tigers away who won 13-16 away to Bordeaux there last weekend. George Ford flying their nine for nine in the Premiership. Did a tight win against Quinns there before that game against Bordeaux. And, you know, Leicester are going to present a different challenge altogether, I think, from Stad. They're going to be fitter. They're going to be a lot more structured. They're going to box clever. They have a 10 who's going to, let's face it, he's going to put Carty to the sword as well and Carty's going to put him to the sword and that's going to be a, a, a brilliant battle to watch. But Owen, what do you think Connick needs to do against um, Leicester to ensure that they get out with the win? I think Connacht struggled in the set piece in, in terms of the, the scrum and the maul, uh, particularly off the line out for, with Stad, and I think they're going to str- they're going to struggle with the same thing against Tigers. So they have to make sure that they're pinning the mall de- defense in there, that they stop it at source, either sack it or make sure it's pinned and held. They've got to hold up their scrum and try and get some sort of a platform that they're not conceding sort of penalties, uh, territory, etc. On that, and I think they've got to stick with their their sort of tactics that's got them this far. Um, they've they've they don't necessarily um, have the biggest pack as, to, they, as we've talked about, but they, what they do has is they have two, they have sort of two or three very good lineout jumpers for opposition ball. You've likes of Niall Murray, you've Keen Prendergast there, uh, Oshin Dowling, etc., who are very good at getting up into the air, and they will try to compete. I think more in the air than they will down on the ground in terms of that. And I think if they can continue to be mobile and moving the ball around, they have a chance to, to do that. But I think it's a, it's a much different challenge for them than last weekend. I think Tigers, as you said, are going so well. Connacht's away form in Europe is actually pretty poor. I think they've lost the last six and they've struggled to win in England as well. So I find it hard to see them getting anything out of this. Yeah, and the same. I was going to ask next who you who you think is going to win, but you've answered that question there. I see a Tigers win as well just because of the way they're going. Uh, in both the Premiership and that win last week against Bordeaux, uh, Tom, how do you see it going? Uh, I think Tigers' game uh, that they, that like their base game, I think, is something that Connacht have typically struggled to get beyond. Like what 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 Tigers won't do is trade transi- transitions quite loosely. They, they they're quite conservative in the way they play. And uh, uh, George Ford is one of the best kickers of the ball playing the game right now. I feel he will play a conservative game up until. He doesn't. And I, I think that, you know, the set piece the Tigers have, the scrum they have, their ability to soak up phase pressure and to, to, to hurt you while you're doing it. They've got a fantastic pack and uh, they, they've done a great job in building that. 
I'm struggling to see Connacht picking up a, a win here. A losing bonus point, I feel, would be a great result for them. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and just on the news of Leicester as well, that was announced earlier today, and I know it's a provincial podcast, but sure, it's worth saying that Ellis Genge has said he's going to leave the club at the end of the season. A lot of that going around, but we'll get to that. Uh, moving on to Leinster, they won 45-20 at home to Bath, sweet Bath, who will get to again in a while, seven tries against two. The best thing I think I can say about Bath here is that they didn't lose by as much as I thought they would. And probably the worst thing I can say about Leinster is that their final quarter, like they lost that final quarter 7-0. I don't think Leinster, and it's been said throughout, you know, in, in press conferences throughout the week and stuff like that, that they weren't too happy with the game. But I actually don't think they will be too happy with the game. They've conceded 15 turnovers. Um, you know, they, they conceded 12 penalties, they lost the last quarter of the game, which is something they don't like to do as a team. Um, it's not often you look at a 25 point win in Europe and say it should have been better. Tom, what did you make of the game? Uh, I thought Linster were very impressive again, up until they weren't like their, their first, I think they're what their first half an hour. I, I think they were really good, like it, they were just again winning collisions and looking like they could put you know 60. 70 points on, on, on Bath. Now, again, they, they won 45-20. It was a fairly comprehensive win. But again, I just got the impression that, and I, I got this impression at different points during the season looking at Leinster, where they've been impressive, obviously, and to say that they weren't that, that, that they weren't looking impressive would be a, a lie. Like they, In general, they have been, but there's been elements during different games where they've just seen a little bit flat. And I think one of the things that I think that really stands out to me is that when they transition to their bench now, Typically, you were transitioning from a front row that had Furlong in it to a front row that had Porter in it. Th- that was something that you could spread across the entirety of the game. I think once uh, Leinster have uh, that front row off the field, their ability to win collisions goes down. And when that happens, it becomes way more difficult for them to play. We saw what Ulster did. We spoke about it last week when they were winning collisions against Leinster. It all of a sudden, Leinster started to look quite ordinary. And even if they had guys out who would normally play, and I think that what Bath did well as well, like in the last quarter, you could say, look, Leinster took their foot off the pedal. But again, we don't really associate that with Leinster. Like Leinster, once they have a score up on, on, on teams, keep running that in, especially in the last quarter. So for Bath to do as well as they did, it, it it's not concerning, but I think it's something that they look at and they'll be thinking like that, that they really do need to improve that because as ever, it's not really going to be a problem for them during the group stages. I, I seriously doubt that. I, I, again, I'd like, I think they'll, they'll run through most everybody who they play here. So Tom, just, uh, to, just, to, just to touch on your point there, do you think the new league format in the URC is impacting Leinster's European ability? Well, this is something that we've heard about consistently, isn't it? You know, where like they talk about when they lost to La Rochelle last year, we heard a lot in the media about how oh, the, the Pro 14 isn't preparing Leinster for the, the, the top end of the European Cup. Like, you know, it's, it's the Pro 14's fault. I think that when you look at the URC, the first couple of blocks that we've seen, well, the first block of five games and the games since, Leinster, I think in general, have had to play a stronger side than what they normally would. New Shield system has ensured that you need to win games now where typically you could afford to lose. Not that Leinster did, but I think that now you're going to be playing stronger teams on the whole. So I think that when you look at what Leinster talk about when they're they're, they're building cohesion towards these games, I'm not sure. I think the URC is a, is a good league and I think it does prepare you to take on. Because again, we look at just the number of wins that the URC teams had this weekend. But I think for Leinster, I, I think it just comes down to they're a team who, when they are on the front foot, will beat anybody, regardless of who it is. 
But if anybody, whoever they are, could put them onto the back front, uh, onto the back foot, Dragons did it in Rodney Parade and really stymied Leinster and made it look really, really difficult for actually quite a strong Leinster side relative to the game itself. Ulster did it. And to an extent at different points here, Bath did it through either through physicality, through their uh, breakdown work or through just Leinster's errors, made it very difficult for, for Leinster to try and get into the flow that they normally do. Because when Leinster are rolling and they're winning collisions, they've got the, all the momentum going. So difficult to stop. But I think the URC is, I, I think it actually does prepare them quite well, but it doesn't, it, there's no magic bullet that will prepare you what to do when you're losing collisions or even getting kind of parity minus when normally you're expecting and getting uh, parity plus. And like when they have parity plus, they beat anybody and everybody. But when they're, when it's equal or below, I, I, don't, I know I keep going on about collisions, but it, it's, one of, it's one of the biggest areas of the game. And I think that, when, when Bath got a grip of them that way, Leinster started to put in a bit of errors. And you could say, look, Bench didn't do, didn't didn't have the impact that they would have liked. But that's something I feel, especially with the Porter switch being as successful as it is, they're going to have to live with, where you're not going to have that full platform on the field as effective as what they would normally have for the full 80 minutes. Yeah, I remember watching that game on Saturday and I saw Bath kicking for points early in the game. And like, I'm, I'm very much a take your points man, but I do believe that there's a context there that you have to play into as well. And, that context for me was against Leinster. You're not going to win just by taking threes if you're not on top physically. Um, I think it was bad second penalty that they kicked to go to six points. About 10 minutes later, they had a penalty in the exact same spot and they went for the lineout. And you're thinking, why didn't you do that 10 minutes ago? Or what's the difference in it? Um, for me, I thought that Bath should have just been kicking to touch early on and looking to put pressure straight down on Leinster. But you know, at the end of the day, they didn't. And in, in, in fairness to Leinster, all you can do is play against what's in front of you. But oh, and it looked like the game was over inside 25 minutes, but Bath kind of stopped the onslaught a little bit. How did they go about that? Well, I think I think as as Tom talked about there, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that sort of look, Leinster, they were point a minute for nearly the first half hour and they were doing really well. And I thought at that point, Leinster's decision, they were winning the collisions and Leinster's decision-making and execution was excellent. I think from that point on, it sort of went downhill in terms of some of the decision-making. I think there was, whether it's sloppiness, you know, the set piece started to creak a little bit. Um, And I think one of the things that'll probably be most sort of worrying is probably overplaying it. But if you look at the two bath tries, both were sort of from uh, lineouts, strike plays. So the first one was just a, a peel around the front, and they exposed Gibson Park defending there. They got a two on one very easily. There was no one reacted, and it was a, a sort of a, a straight twenty minute meter run in um, down the line with Larmer having no hope against um, uh, against the, the forward there. And then the the second try that they scored late on was another strike move in midfield when the subs were there and the communication and cohesiveness just didn't seem to be there. And I think, again, that goes back to what Tom was talking about in terms of having and being able to prep the squad during things like the Autumn Internationals. These guys would have got game time at the top level. They would be able to read and work together more as units. And I think that's what's missing within there. I think Bath 
did start to get into it more. I think they adapted to the ref. They started to make better decisions. I thought their defense early on was just horrific, even in simple things about spotting numbers um, and things like that. And Leinster really put them to the sword. There was great work from, I thought, you know, the likes of Lowe um, in terms of his playmaking ability coming into midfield and the, the front row that we've talked about in terms of sort of um, Porter, Furlong, Kelleher, that is just, that is a world-class front row. And if you're coming up against a team that is struggling so badly within their own league and these guys come in, we, we saw, if you look at all the Leinster tries, all of them come from forward domination to set, whether it's scored by the forwards or not, it's set up. And a lot of cases, the backs are just walking it in. And I think, you know, if, if Leinster, if you allow Leinster to do that to you, they'll kill you and they will absolutely walk over. And a lot of the time, and I suppose this is why it's surprising to us, a lot of the time Leinster don't take their foot off the pedal. They absolutely continue on. And as you said, into the last quarter, it's such a surprise to see them lose 7-0 in the last quarter because that's when you expect them to be putting the foot down for the for the sort of the reserve or young guys coming on. They want to impress. They want to um, have a sort of put it down a, a stake or a, um, a marker to get into that first team and make it a, a sort of a challenge for it. And they're not doing that now. And I think that goes back to, as Tom was talking about, in terms of their how they're adapting to the new URC format. Well, next up, they have Montpellier away. Um, Montpellier last 42-6. They got absolutely thumped by Exeter, but, you know, they kept a lot of key players. But it would appear now that COVID is going to cause a significant problem in both camps. And it's actually... Tomorrow, so the day this podcast is released, they're going to make a call on whether that game goes ahead or not. So that's going to be an interesting one to see. I think um, if the game does go ahead, you know, Montpellier at home, they offer a physical game and they offer everything that we said there that you need to do to beat Leinster. I see it being a tussle. I see Leinster coming out on top if the game does go ahead um, just because I think they do have that small bit more um, class and I don't think they're going to allow themselves to be outmuscled by Montpellier. Um, but looking at that Montpellier team, uh, Tom, what do you think they're going to try and do? Bar like obviously the collisions, it's a collision sport, we know that. But what key players did they keep from last week that you think are going to make um, a significant influence on the game this week? Well, they've got a few guys out who, who look to come back in. But from a game plan perspective, like against, uh, against Leinster, you can't let Leinster play their game to an extent you have to kick smartly I think we've, we've spoken before in this podcast about like that needing to kick smartly against Leinster not allowing them to get into their transition sets as, as, as when they start rolling like that they're very very difficult to play against but when you look at like what Montpellier would look to do if I'm Montpellier uh, one area I look to try and get at Leinster is the line out uh, I look to try and scrag them there prevent them from getting that momentum Leinster are a bit like Ireland that when they start getting that clean line out possession they're so difficult especially Josh van der Fleer has turned into such a good line-out forward. His ability to link up line-out and the, the loop off the line-out or the midfield is just really, really effective. And I, But I, I think one of the biggest factors for me, I think Owen spoke about it there, is I think when you look at Leinster's back line, especially when they, you know, for, for games they really need to win, uh, I think their, 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 their uh, line-up, which potentially, again, depending on, again, depending on COVID, and even if the game goes ahead, with Byrne, Frawley and Ringrose, I think that as long as they have forward domination, that will work fine. But if the uh, the Montpellier forwards turn this into a bit of a slugfest, which I imagine they will do, look to play very direct off nine, not look to try and overplay too much. I just don't think they will. I think they will play quite conservatively. Um, I think you could be looking at possibly putting a lot of pressure on 
Burn, Frawley and Ringrose uh, with Lowe, as we saw here, had the most amount of carries, I think, there was for Leinster in this game. Like, he plays like another midfielder for, for Leinster. And I think that might put a little bit more pressure and almost expose Lowe to a little bit, much, a little bit much, uh, more traffic than what I think Leinster would want and something that Montpellier could perhaps identify in advance. So again, a lot of, a lot of it will depend. Like, who do Leinster have available? I, I think if Leinster have that front row available, because then did they have COVID cases in their senior ranks? We have no idea who that might be. But I think if they are down one or two of those guys, or maybe one of those guys, it becomes a much more difficult game to execute. It becomes a much more difficult game to... Because I think we can all see Leinster having a game here against Montpellier where there's a bit of a sticky patch in the game where physically think they're, 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 they're struggling. But then they just get, you know, kick into gear, one, two, three tries, and then it's game over. Montpellier don't, you know, aren't, aren't bothered. But I think that for Montpellier, I think that the, the, the tighter they keep this game, the more conservative they play earlier on, the more I feel they look to try and grow in and like to even take, to be in a position to take those trees that back did. Um, but I, th I think actually Montpellier had the size to actually do that. So we'll see how it goes. I, I expect Leinster to win. Even if they're down one or two guys, I think Leinster just have too much, uh, not craft, and it's been a bit of a cliche, but you look at the guys who they have there, they have an answer for most teams that they play. And I don't think Montpellier are an elite side in the way that maybe a La Rochelle would be or a Racing or a, or a Toulouse when it comes to, you know, mobilising their size. But yeah, I, 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 look at, I look at Montpellier as being a tricky game for Leinster here, but depending on who they have available, if they're mostly the same as last week, they should win. But I'm not expecting a blowout in the same way that, that, that they did against Bath. Well, moving on, we finally have a Munster game to talk about. Um, Munster won... 35-14 away to Wasps, got a bonus point as well. Given the attack and territory was pretty even, you know, to me, it was an absolutely fantastic showing from an awful lot of young guns. And I know, you know, the backline, when you look at Munster's backline, there's a lot of established players in that backline, you know, six out of seven. It was the front five um, players that really fronted up for me. And, uh, you know, even the back row, you know, I thought Hadden, it was unbelievable. I thought Okeke was excellent. But Owen, before we jump into the game itself, where does this win rank in terms of Munster European performances for you? Well, uh, yeah, I suppose, and that's something we need to be a little bit objective on. So, like, I think you got to understand the the sort of the circumstances around it. It was fifty days; it was just over seven weeks without a game going into this. There was thirty four squad members, I think, missing. Coaches unable to get onto the training pitch, and it was the academy coaches, the likes of Ian Costello, Andy Kiriku, and. Uh, Greg Oliver, I think it was, that were actually running things in training and during match day. So I think like that's a challenge that no other Irish team has ever had to face. Something going into it like that—that's the the equivalent of doing a, a preseason without your, on without basically the majority of your squad available to you. Um, and to come away from that with a bonus point victory away in Europe is unbelievable. That is the first thing. It is. A massive thing and I think when you hear the likes of Peter Romani talk about it after the game where you know he talks about it being one of his best achievements etc that's because of the I suppose the role that he had to play in that um, in terms of he was given a leadership role along with a lot of the other Irish internationals in terms of bringing on these AIL guys and academy players and getting them up to speed with calls and systems etc during the week and I think they feel an, an awful lot in in that and like, I don't think anyone can, I think it's very hard for us outside maybe the, the squad environment to understand the amount of effort that went into getting that team over to Coventry in the first place 
and be able to play the game because you look at what happened with Scarlets, etc. You know, not being able to field a team. And there is a but to this. This was a very, very weak WASP team. It was a brilliant display. It was a very weak WASP team. They got a red card. They had another yellow card. They shot themselves in the foot. And but and in, in terms of the prestige, you know, it doesn't live up to the likes of the Miracle Match or beating, you know, Martin Johnson's Tigers in Welford Road or Toulouse in Bordeaux in, two, um, in 2000. And it, it doesn't. But it could mean an awful lot more if Munster can actually push on and do turn this into something. Can this be something that actually spurs the squad on for this season and turns it into sort of getting something where we can either see some of these young guns pushing on to sort of get into either, whether it be get contracts, whether it be push into a sort of a pro 14 squad, push on to a sort of a starting 23 or something like that, or help to inspire the, 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 the squad itself to get some sort of silverware. And I think that will be the true legacy on it. But we've got to, I think you've got to um, acknowledge the effort and everything that went into it and how good that was, but also the quality of the opposition. You mentioned Brad Shields' red card there. You know, Wasps were only 3-0 down, uh, 25 minutes gone when he got that card. And shortly after, Dan Frost got the yellow, I think just before half time was it? And I think they played the first eight or so minutes of the second half with, um, with 13 men. You know, Munster scored 12 in that in that situation and actually didn't concede anything. And I felt that showed great maturity from that young group to, um, to you know, not I suppose not to panic with that opportunity that was in front of them and to just trust the process and keep doing what they were meant to be doing and it paid dividends. But a massive thing for me in that game, and I don't actually think an awful lot was made of it, but it was Barbary going off at half time. I felt he had an unbelievable 40 minutes for Wasps. He was absolutely everywhere. And I think if he had stayed on, you know, I oh, one man's not enough to stem that tide against 13, don't get or for 13, don't get me wrong, but I felt that he was absolutely unbelievable um, for Wasps in that half, and he can be very proud of his efforts uh, in that game. But looking ahead to cast, and I think I know there's talk of Joey Carberry's injury, and we'll get to that in a while, but you know, looking ahead to cast at home now next weekend, they lost 18 20 to, to Quinns. Like, Tom, are they going to fancy a trip to Limerick in December? Uh, they usually do. Uh, there's a lot of spice between these two teams. There really is. I love it. I love it. Uh, it it's great. Like, I mean, uh, Johan spoke about it today during the presser, but that that this is a spicy fixture. And it, it is. Like, you look at the guys who were there, uh, they're just unlikable. You know, like, Rory Cockett is still playing for these guys. They pride themselves on being unlikable, to be fair, you know. So you look, you look at the way that, that they'll approach this game. Uh, where they don't really have anything to, to lose to an extent. We'll see what team they send over. They may they, they may decide to, to rest guys and, and focus on the top 14 because when you lose one game, especially a home game in uh, in, in this tournament, that kind of that kind of puts you uh, under real pressure and you can actually start going chasing. Do they really want to do that? That's the question. Um, they'll be tough to play at home. I, I'll wait to see who they send, but it's going to be a, a very tough physical game. Like these guys come out like I'd expect Munster to win it but you look at the guys who were there uh, just very very I, I'm, I'm going to expect a very physical very niggly game here because that that's what cast are all about like is in they're, they're not going to be coming out here to play play some good rugby and have a nice shake hands with the lads afterwards like this is going to be nasty but that's good that's what we want to see um, and, and to follow up on what Owen said there because uh, I think we've seen a bit of a kind of a, a reverse circle jerk about that win against Wasps on Sunday where you know people trying to kind of, you know, counter 
some attempt to, to methodize the game. Uh, first of all, I think that, that, that Munster did well to win that game, like given everything that Owen said there is exactly right. But if I was looking at that game for a preseason friendly and I looked at both team sheets, I'd expect Munster to win and win well. But the biggest thing for me is that we actually did go out there and win and win well and put Wasps away relatively comfortably. And that, I think, for me, is the biggest, is the biggest takeaway that Munster didn't go out there and played like a small team or like a team who was coming out there, uh, geez, we're just going to give it a lash. A lot of those young fellas went out there and played like they expected to win. And I think that was the most pleasing thing for me. And like, yeah, look, it's a fantastic achievement. Wasps weren't up to much good and then they were down to 14 and 13, as you said. But uh, for me, it was how confident a lot of those lads went out there and looked the way Scott Buckley played, the way Daniel O'Keke played, John Hodnett, unbelievable. That for me was the the biggest takeaway, and I, I think if a lot of those guys are included this weekend against Cast, I've no doubt that they'd back it up again. A big thing for me was Munster's ruck speed against Wasps. I think they averaged three second rucks throughout the, the, the game. But if they bring that against um, Cast and keep playing the way they know they can play, I think that they'll be in good stead. But Owen, do you think there's a pressure on Munster now to back up what they did last weekend? Given they'll probably have players back, they, you know, they. I don't know what team they'll put out. No, don't get me wrong. But like, you know, do, do you think that there is a pressure on them to back up last weekend to say, look, even if we do put out youngsters, it wasn't a once off against Wasps and we can we can go out and do it against Cast and we can probably push on and do it in the next week as well? I, I Look, I think there's always a pressure on Munster and particularly at home. So like once Munster are playing at home in Europe, in Thoman Park, that's it. There is a pressure to win. And it doesn't matter, as it was seen against Wasps, it doesn't matter who t- who takes it and who plays you have to, you're expected to go out and win. And I think that's the way it should be. Um, like, as you said, we've seen some fantastic um, displays from the likes of Daniel Okeke and Pa Campbell and uh, Scott Buckley, particularly, I think, put his hand up. You know, there's, there's a lot of good talent coming through. We need to manage that. Um, I think from what I'd seen in from the training pictures today, a lot of the guys ba- are back from uh, who were in South Africa seem to be back. The likes of John Klein, John Ryan, etc., were there training. So I would hope that we would be able to bring back some of that and sort of match the physicality that I expect from Cass. Um, and I think particularly in the tight five is where we're going to need it. We struggled badly at scrum time against Wasps. It just wasn't there, and like that's that's no one's fault. I thought I thought James uh, French was fantastic in terms of what he did. He he was struggling at scrum at scrum time, but he kept coming back, and his play in the loose was excellent. And uh, you know, it was a tough day from him, but he will learn so much from that. Scott Buckley, his line out gave Munster the absolute platform to play from and score from. It was really uh, from that, and he he showed up so well with ball in hand. I think Munster need to if they could mix and match even get maybe one or two of those sort of younger guys on the bench to, to, to continue to reward them and and go through i think it would really benefit the squad overall um you know if, if you could get the likes of maybe daniel okeke on the bench and, and give him a run out at home in front of a, a sort of a hopefully close to full stadium yeah i think um i think it would be an unbelievable buzz for a fellow like him to to get to witness that at home to to get to transfer that energy of the wasps game across to a home game too um i'm going for a monster win at home it's probably that expectation we spoke about already but Owen, tom what do you reckon i'll go with a, a monster bonus point win at home i'd be the same uh, i think that monster will relish the expectation especially with how well they played with those young lads as well uh, i i'm going for a monster win and and probably a bonus point too 
spot on. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement there. So that moves us on to Ulster, who had a very, very good 29-23 away win to Claremont. They got no bonus point, but I don't think they'll actually care too much, to be honest with you, because wins away to Claremont are as rare as hen's teeth. I think I read there uh, during the week that only two teams have won away to both Leinster and Claremont in the same professional season. Um, and that was Munster and Ulster. So it's something to be proud of. Um, two tries apiece. I think what separated Ulster from them was um, their kicks from hand. They kicked 30 times from hand. And just to put that into a bit of context, you know, Leinster only kicked 15, Connacht 24. Uh, they only conceded eight penalties, you know, over 80 minutes. That's fantastic going. Uh, there was two yellows for Claremont with only nine penalties conceded. So I think that also added to Ulster's bonus. But at the end of the day, I felt Ulster were well worth their win against Claremont. Uh, there was a change of tactics on that we saw. Um, you know, Ulster played the Ospreys there. Uh, was it? Sorry, a couple of weeks ago now. But I felt we saw a change of tactics from Ulster than we saw against the Ospreys there when they came up against Claremont. Yeah, I think you could see against the, the Ospreys how they, they went to the corner early and they looked to build the pressure through territory um, and tried to put the pressure onto the referee that they were inside the 22, almost looking for yellow cards against the Ospreys. Whereas they changed that very early um, against Claremont and you could see that they went to the, um, to the boot of Cooney. And they suddenly started racking up. It was sort of three, six, nine, and they put the pressure on through the scoreboard itself and I think that forced Claremont into playing a catch-up game that they wouldn't have necessarily gone to that early and you know they I as you talked about I think their tactical kicking was brilliant I thought that they they were very patient in what they did there was uh they were a lot more patient they didn't try to force it and they got the benefit with some sloppy kicking and good pressure with the chase and they won huge territorial gains from those kicks that allowed them to start to play in the right parts of the field when they wanted to, and also to use, I suppose, the the pace and skill of their their backline, um, when when they got that chance in transition plays. Yeah, I felt Cooney was um really putting a stamp on the game. You know, seven from seven from the tee in a pressure kick in a pressure game like that away to Claremont. Um, I felt he was fantastic. But three others, um, that I also thought were unbelievable was McCluskey, Hume, and Mike Lowry. Um, James Hume, I think, is going to play with Ireland very very soon. Um, the next Six Nations, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in a 13 the way he's going, but uh, we'll get to him in a minute. But looking at uh, the back row, we saw Dwayne Vermeulen come in for his first game and it's a difficult time to come in for him. You know, he comes in and he has to quarantine for a while and then I think he only had one training session and he's, tr- he's thrown straight into the deep end with Ulster at number eight. But, you know, he's one of those guys, I suppose, you want to get on the pitch uh, as, as quick as you can, you know, um, someone of his calibre you want playing. But I felt the back row shown really really well um but no more so than nick timoney and there was probably a lot of talk around Dwayne remuel and people are probably listening to this now saying jesus jeff really loves nick timoney because he goes on about him every week but there's a reason i go on about him every week and it's because he is sheer class um he had the biggest carrying average at the back row um so i mean people talk about remuel he had 11 carries in the game but timoney only had eight i think for 31 meters which which upped his average over uh, ray as well so I felt he was I felt he was unbelievable. I felt he was unbelievable in the game. Um he added exactly what he always looks to add. And at the end of the day, he allows Ulster to play the game that they want to play through his workload. Um I felt he was unbelievable. But um looking at McCluskey and Hume Tom, what do you make of them? Uh I think they're really well balanced in that in that Ulster midfield. Like even with like Vermeulen and, and Timoney that you mentioned there, I think Vermeulen allows Timoney to play 
a more rounded game almost, uh, doing more of what he's good at. Uh, Vermeulen, I think, is going to be a massive addition for Ulster if they can keep him fit, which would be, which would be the one issue for him. Uh, he's a guy who will just take so much workload and so much uh, mental load off the other, like young, like uh, Nick Timoney. He's not, not a young player. I think he's like, what, 26? But he's still, I think he's in, in, at a stage now where he's taking a, a, a big step forward, I feel, in his career. You look at that kind of small forward role like that, 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 that Nick Timoney plays, you've got to be a good carrier. You've got to have a good passing game. You've got to be good at the breakdown. You've got to have a good defensive work rate. You've got to be good at the lineout. You've got to know the scheme. You've got to be able to pass off there as well. Nick Timoney can do all of that. He's such a well-rounded player. But like you look at the midfield then with McCluskey and Hume, McCluskey just allows Hume to, to play this really sophisticated game where like Hume is picking these fabulous running lines with his pace, and he's a big, he's a big young fella as well. Like he's six three, he's a, and like he's a, he's a, he's got good good size in him. I agree with you there, uh, Jeff. I, I I think that when you look at you look at James Hume, he's really pushing for that Ireland squad. It's like if I'm Andy Farrell looking at him, and I look at Gary Ringrose, I know what Gary Ringrose brings me, but when I look at at James Hume, his ability to to create those line breaks, he offers me I think a much more conventional option in some ways that Ireland have been looking to balance out in midfield where you're trying to get this balance between uh, the physicality of, of Henshaw and Aki with the overall work rate of, of Gary Ringrose, where he can often appear like a, like a flanker almost with what he actually does on the field rather than what he's assumed to do. But I look at James Hume and I see him as a guy who can bring that aspect of it. But I think his physicality and how he can play direct, he can play more subtle. He's got a good skill set. I think he's a guy who, for me, is just really, really pushing and seems to have taken the exact lesson he should have taken from not featuring at all during November because uh, his performance is against Leinster and then uh, against uh, against Claremont here were of the highest quality. And he looks like a guy who's starting to, a bit like Nick Timoney, ascend up to that next level. Um, looking ahead... Ulster have Saints at home next. They got absolutely whacked by uh, Racing 92 there last weekend, 14-45. They're six, uh, they're six from nine in the Premiership, though, and they have the third best choice scoring record in the Premiership, too, and they have away wins to the likes of Exeter and Bristol. I think despite the fact that they did get hammered by Racing, um, you know, Racing on form, it's hard not to, to lose to, but I think they will still fancy this away trip, especially with um, the likes of Robert Balakoon injured for Ulster, who's a... Uh, you know who's a, who's a big player for Ulster on the wing. So, uh, Owen, what do you what do you make of next weekend with Saints coming around? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to before the the first round of the, the the Champions Cup. It's always very hard to understand sort of and compare the different leagues. And I think maybe um, Saints had looked very good within the Premiership, but when you get the likes of of Racing coming along and you you give Finn Russell front football and space to play he is going to absolutely kill you and i think that will be a big worry for um for saints and the question will be can ulster get enough front football again against them to do it i think they ulster should have enough i think um vermeulen was a huge huge influence in the 50 minutes that he was on his leadership his tight carrying etc um i don't think henderson is back yet for them um, and again he would be a, a brilliant add to that but if he's missing as well I still think the Ulster have a, a, a sort of a great sort of next man up sort of quality within their squad that it doesn't matter too much who's stepping in they still seem to be able to perform um, I think they'll use a, a sort of a 
a similar tactic that they did against Claremont, even though it'll be at home. I think they'll try and keep the scoreboard ticking over and then start to play. Um, and I think they have enough for a, for a home win. Maybe not a bonus point win, but I think they'll have enough for a home win. Yeah, I think I'm going for a home win myself on that one. Tom, what do you reckon? Uh, I have a feeling that this could be a sticky enough game for Ulster, actually. You look at their record over the last number of weeks. They lose to Connacht, get a big win against Leinster. Then they lose to Ospreys in a poor game. Now they've come out here and they've beaten Claremont and played really, really well. This is the type of game that, that, that Ulster over the last couple of weeks have actually struggled with coming up against Northampton. Again, it depends on Northampton's approach. Uh, and again, I think if I'm Northampton, I try and dictate the game or allow, give the, like, to try and play off ball as much as possible to try and force Leinster or Ulster to play. Now, again, if you can stop Dwayne Vermeulen and stop Stuart McCluskey, you've got a good chance of stopping Ulster ultimately. I look at the way that they played here, that their, their kicking game did take a lot of pressure off them, I feel. And, you know, especially when you look at the back three of, of Claremont, I think they struggled. But again, I think for Ulster, the biggest challenge here is a mental one. Can they take what was a fantastic result last week against Claremont and twist that the way they need to, to come out here in the Kingspan and, and to put away a Saints team, who I'm yet to be convinced about, really. I think, I think it's the same for a lot of these Premiership teams, actually, where there's a lot of hype involved in that league, where I look at a lot of those teams where we're hearing about how they're fantastic and they're brilliant and all this, but I, I watch the Gallagher Premiership quite regularly, and I didn't expect a whole load of massive wins for them this year, or like in, in this round of games. And if I'm Ulster, I'm thinking, looking at that Northampton side and thinking they're eminently beatable. They are no better or worse than any team that you'll play in the URC. And I think that they might actually be worse than a significant amount of them. So they have some good players. They play some good attacking stuff, but Ulster should be winning this. It's whether they can handle the pressure to actually go out there and do it is the thing for me. So are you going to go for the Ulster win or are you going to go for a Saints win? I'm going to go with, with an Ulster win. Um, but again, the challenge would be for them if they can kind of step up mentally and to, to not allow last week to kind of cloud this week a little bit too much if they approach it with the same vigour that they did for uh, the Leinster game and this Claremont game, they'll be flying it. But if they show up like they did against the Ospreys, uh, it could be a long old day for them and it could end up being a, a sticky old game that they, they, could, they, they could well lose, but I think they'll win. Yeah, same as. So that's the end of the provincial side of things. And uh, we're going to move on now to the questions that you threw into us during the week. The first one we're going to start with, uh, I'm going to jump to you on first. And uh, it's something we kind of touched on already. Um, myself and Tom have mentioned it, but I'm going to pass the mantle over to you. James Hume, for, uh, I'll try that again. James Hume for Ireland. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think, um, as you guys have talked about, himself and McCloskey are so good a partnership. Um, you look at Hume's sort of skill sets in terms of his passing, his footwork, etc. But for me, it's it's the intelligence in, in how he runs his lines, particularly off McCluskey. Um, McCluskey reminds me of that sort of early 2000s type inside centre. You're sort of Kevin Maggs, Rob Henderson type, who'll crash it up, really sort of attracting the defenders, but has this insane ability to free up the hands in the tackle and offload it. And he, um, McCluskey just draws defenders to him. He really is the focal point of Ulster's backline. And when you look at Hume, he it's McCluskey creates that space for Hume. And it's the ability of Hume to work off that. Um, and it's sort of it, Hume in ways, if going back to, again, watching those sort of, you think of the Kevin Maggs and Rob Henderson, he reminds me a lot of the lines that um, O'Driscoll used to run. He, he runs a lovely outside in arcing line to run off uh, McCluskey. Now, I think for Ireland, I think Hume is going to play for Ireland, but I think what he has to do is he has to show 
Farrell that he can work with someone other than McCluskey. And unfortunately, he doesn't necessarily get that chance too much with Ulster because McCluskey is so central to it. So I think where Hume has to prove it is on the sort of the training pitch in Carton House. And he has to show that he can work. While Aki and Henshaw are somewhat similar, they're not quite the same as McCluskey in terms of their style. And I think for that, if he can show that he can work and run the same lines off it and he can bring everything, I think, what was it? He beat eight defenders in 11 carries at the weekend against Claremont. He has the, fo- the footwork um, to do it. He has the passing. He has the lines. If he can show that he can work with that, I think he is a great chance. And I think maybe the one other thing that he needs to bring is physicality. Cat and Farrell love the physicality from their two centres. They're like two big centres in there. Even if you think about Gary Ringrose in terms of the, the game against um, Argentina at the end of November internationals, huge physicality, big hit. I think Hume needs to show maybe just a little bit more of that in terms of what he can do in defence and putting guys constantly backwards. And if he can do the two of those things, I think he'll either get a chance in the Six Nations or definitely on the summer tour to New Zealand. I'm going to play devil's advocate there for a second. If you have a guy who can beat eight defenders in 11 carries, I would not want him looking to run to contact, to be honest with you. I'm not saying he has to run to contact. I'm saying it's the physicality more in defence that they'll be looking for. Oh, yeah, I'm with you now, yeah. And that moment, actually, in terms of the physicality against def- in, def- in defence, that moment against Leinster late in the game when he scored his second try, um, that engine he had to keep that line pressure up. And I know we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but I think that sticks out in my mind as probably one of the highlights of Hume uh, so far this season. But we'll move on to our second question. Uh, and Tom, I'm going to let you take this one. Joey Carberry, um, if it wasn't for bad luck, he'd have none. Uh, what does his injury mean for Munster and does it increase the pressure on young players or does it release them from pressure because they've not to lose uh, it's it's a complex one uh, I think when you look at Joy Carberry his injury record has just been and look it's nobody's fault um, but it's just been it's just been really bad he's played something like 30 games in four seasons now that's very difficult because uh, Munster signed him and have contracted him to be the top guy at the, at, at the club in the way that Sexton is for Leinster, that, that Carty is for Connacht. Like, that's the type of guy that, that Munster got down from Leinster in the first place and then reinvested with, because if you remember, he signed a second contract fairly quickly after the first. So for him to be as out as long as he has been is just a nightmare. But just even just from an individual basis for the player, nobody wants to be there rehabbing. And this is a fractured elbow, so like we, might, we might not see him in reality until after the Six Nations in, in a Munster jersey which again is a, is, a, is a disaster because he's been so long rehabbing over the last while. But I think you look at the young players, and I think we, we spoke earlier about like about JJ Hanrahan, uh, how well he played for, he was playing very well for, for Claremont. Uh, he wasn't offered a deal last year at Munster because again, look, contracting is what it is. We're in the environment now. And I think we, when we speak about Van Cron there in a minute, like we, we look at the environment where all of the provinces have to cut money from their budget. That was true last season. It's true again this year. So for a guy like JJ, who was the, the 1B in that position, with, with Carberry being the 1A, albeit injured, you look at um, what uh, Munster's options were in that instance, and I don't think they had the space because you've got guys like Ben Healy and Jack Crowley, who is very high potential young players. Now, if available this week, which uh, I, I think they are based on the, the, the training photos that we saw, uh, I would have zero doubt about these guys that they can come in and perform because again I think that I look at that game against Wasps and I look at how well those other young players played I think that Jack Crowley and Ben Healy 
have so much potential to be serious players for Munster now. Maybe with you know they, they need some of them need a bit of seasoning. I'd say Jack Crowley needs a few more appearances, maybe. But I, I look at the way that, that Ben Healy played for Munster against the Scarlets. That's a very, very impressive performance from him that showed the full court game, not just kicking, passing, control of the game. So for me, it's uh for me, I, I think it should allow them a bit of freedom to go out there and show what they can do because like I think when you look at the way that Munster played last week again, albeit against weakened opposition. I think that should give everybody a lot of confidence that there should be no reason at all why they can't come in and perform, uh, especially after the week that Munster put down. Yeah, I think so too. And you you mentioned Jack Crowley and there's been people crowing about him, rightly so, for the last couple of seasons to to get a shot and to get more game time. I mean, some people are born great and others have greatness thrust upon them. And this is probably a great chance for the likes of Healy. Well, Healy has the, the, the experience, I suppose, at, at URC or Pro 14 level, but... It's going to be a great uh, opportunity for these young players, I think, to come in. Um, the third question we had then was um, in regards to the letter to the government by the players and what's our thoughts on that. And if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind weighing in there a little bit first. Um, the first thing I'll say is those players that I'd be friends with, I text them and I said that I was very proud of them for taking the stance and it's something that I stick with now. Um, it certainly can't have been easy for them given they're currently still involved in the national setup uh, to, to speak out in the way they did. Um, looking at the letter itself, uh, there was a couple of things about it. I mean, I just have a few quotes here that I'm going to look at. The aim of this letter is to seek your support now to enable meaningful change for all levels of the women's game in Ireland. I mean, that is not a lot to ask, and that's all they want. Um, the next quote I picked out was, we write in the wake of series of recent disappointments for the international team on and off the field, but ultimately, re recent events simply reflect multiple cycles of substandard commitment from the union, inequitable and untrustworthy leadership, a lack of transparency in governance and operation of the women's game, both domestically and at international level, and an overall total lack of ambition about what it could achieve. I think the fact that they want the, the reviews to become public, if that was a lie, there would be no issue with making the reviews public. I think if the IRFU had nothing to hide and said we did absolutely everything, then this wouldn't be an issue. And the last quote I have picked out is a large group of current players, including some who have recently retired, have collectively submitted a more detailed overview for the World Cup Qualifier Review, which we are happy to privately share with you. And what gets me here is this is a group of players who are looking to collaborate and they're not looking... You know, they're not looking for a witch hunt or anything like that. Like they're on the inside, they're going to know and nobody is in a better position to commentate on the state of the women's game than those playing themselves and those living it day in, day out. Um, as well as that, the, any of the players that I spoke to and I said, you know, I read the letter, they essentially all said the same thing. Whatever the letter says, demand-wise, that's all we want. And the demands in the letter was we asked that you meet with the IRFU to confirm appropriate guarantees of meaningful change so the women's game can move forward positively. That is not a big demand to have. We ask that you request oversight of the ongoing reviews and help guarantee the findings are transparent and help ensure they maintain their independence. That is not a lot to ask. And finally, we ask for your support in gaining assurances that both the findings and the recommendations of these reviews will be made fully available to the players and that the relevant details and full recommendations are published publicly and followed that, that leadership with the, necessary, with the necessary authority and appropriate governments is put in place alongside a serious action plan and new targets to help move the game forward. 
these demands, fellas, I don't know about what you think about them, but to me anyway, these demands aren't exactly mind bending. Like on the third one, that last plan was the last plan that was in place ended in total shambles. And when we go back to, you know, a grand slam, won a championship, first team to beat New Zealand, at that moment we should be cashing in on the women's game and saying, we can grow this to heights that, you know, would rival anyone. Instead, we've regressed hugely. I think the new plans need to work or the women's game is going to be up a creek in Ireland and, well, even more up a creek, I suppose, uh, than right now. Um, I don't think what they asked for in the letter was overly ambitious. Like, I don't think they're actually demanding too much. I think they're just players who want the best for the team they're playing for. Um, in terms of the IRFU rebuttal, um, I felt... I felt it was ridiculous is a word I'd use, um, unnecessary. Like all they had to do was come out and say, we're listening and we understand, we see your frustration. And I think a lot of people who probably think the players were wrong to write that letter don't see what these players go in and or deal with. And the way I see it is if the men's team turned around and that sheer number of men's players in Ireland signed that letter and gave it to the IRFU, would they respond in the same way? And the answer is no. So to me, that's what needs to be addressed as well. Um, I don't know your feelings on the, the letter, lads. I probably went on for a bit of a rant there, to be honest with you. Oh, my, my, my feelings on it are uh, that they obviously feel they felt the need to do it in the first place, which doesn't reflect well on the setup as is. No one could argue that it, that, that it shouldn't be better. My problem with this is and it's not a problem with them writing the letter. They're entitled to write a letter. Uh, is that rugby is the entertainment business. If we're looking at getting women's rugby to where it should be in this country, because it's a, it's a very good product. I've said it before. A lot of the, the things people complain about men's rugby in the modern age do not exist in, in women's rugby. It's a fabulous product and should be something that should be well attended, well watched and all the money that comes with it. Money solves all these problems. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we had the November internationals. We had uh, the Ireland women's team playing the USA and playing Japan. They played in the RDS. Uh, I looked at the, the stadium that day. The tickets beforehand were for half nothing. Where was everybody? I see on social media a constant push that we want to support these people. We need to see people this, this spring with the Six Nations. They're going to be in Dublin. They're going to be in Cork. They're going to be in Belfast, I think. We need to see people coming out and support them. We need to see people coming in at the gates. They need to make themselves undeniable with the support that's there for these people. We see it. Like, we see these, like, and, and like the team is good. They should be doing better than they are. Like, and, and you look at the, you look at the, like, France and England are a mile ahead of everybody else at the moment. Like, the, England, what they beat the, the, ferns how many times um, and you look at France they're the same way they're, they're, draw, they're drawing huge gates for me money solves this problem in a lot of ways and like you can kind of feel a little bit helpless at times looking at this what can an ordinary person do looking at the, the letter they're sending in to the, to the government now the government seem to have responded favourably but they've got to go and do on that and that, like, that's going to be a different thing but what can the individual do listening to this even go to a game when you have a chance to go and bring your friends and I understand it can be inconvenient to go to those games, but like if, if, if you're, if you weren't planning on doing it, go to the games, generate an audience there, generate a base gate that these are the people who are coming in 
And if you're earning money at the gate, all of a sudden, everything starts to change. It becomes undeniable. It goes from something that costs money into something that makes money. And the audience is there for it. I truly believe the product is more than good enough to sell people on coming in and, and, and watching these girls play. Like as in, Bevin Parsons is an absolute superstar. You look at some of the other girls who are playing there, like Emer Considine, super player. You look at like uh, Linda Jugang, unbelievably good player. Like you look at this and you look at like Chloe Pierce, a girl who hasn't even got her opportunity properly at international level yet. There's a great team there. And like those wins over Japan and the USA were gritty. There was an awful lot to like about that. But we need people showing up and supporting this and not just talking about it to come on there and to show up at the gate and start supporting this team with their money. Because it's one thing to talk about it in order to go there and start making yourself undeniable at the gate. Everything will change everywhere else. Once you're making money, all of a sudden the conversation comes, comes down to how can we make more? But at the moment, it just seems like there's, like for me, and it's, it's a bugbear of mine anyway, where there's a lot of talk from people who are not involved directly in it. But I need, I, I need, to, see, I need to see people going to the gate. I know, Jeff, you're heavily involved in women's rugby. Like, you look at, you look at the, 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 the product and the, and the talent that's there. I want to see that double down on. And I want to see people support this with their money. Tweeting about it is fine. Posting about it is fine, but it needs to show up at the gate. Otherwise, it'll just be a problem the next time as well. So it needs to happen. And I think you look at the promotion that's there, it's been good. But we need It needs to be better. Everything needs to be better. And I think there's a problem here with Anthony Eddy also that needs to be addressed. And, and you know, he has not helped the situation, I feel, with his interview a couple of weeks ago. It was disastrous. But as fans, as people who are in this bubble, we need to support it and do better and it's something I've tried to do on my own platform I think we all should be doing it because uh, talking about it anymore like we can help directly cash money going to the gate and enjoying and, and, and actually providing an audience base to build from Oh, and what were your thoughts on the whole lot? Well look I, first of all I agree with both yourself and Tom on this but I, I think one, the main thing that's, that stands out to me on this is I think even if they get the money, I think that this letter proves that there is not the belief from those within the system at the top level that if even if they got the money, that the, that the right support and structures would be put in place and the use of that money would be would be correct. And I think, you know, we talked there about the likes of uh, Anthony Eady, you know, and his sort of uh, press uh, conference on that. And I think that showed exactly part of the problems with this i think the 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 players have gone for the nuclear option and they, they've gone for that and i think they're they're probably right because they're starting to slip so far behind in terms of the likes of england and france that if if something isn't done soon to get that and sort out the structures and the pathways and the facilities and stuff like that for women's rugby they're going to fall so far behind they won't be able to catch up so i think something needs to be done now and this is the right way to do it is to force the hand and to force the engagement because it's not happening and it's it's not like the irfu even have a good track record in publicizing and, and going through these reports the, these sort of things, as we've found out many times, the only way you hear about any of these reports and what's happening and the findings in them is whatever David Newsafora tells at a, at a sort of an IRFU annual account or the, the, uh, a sort of a press conference. These sort of things don't come out. And if the, if the people on the inside are saying it, this is so bad that we need to go and potentially take away the threat of funding, 
then something needs to be looked at. And they, they need as much support as they can get from us and from everyone. Yeah, I do. Th- I do think um, Tom's point of getting to a game is massive. Um, and, you know, you see crowds in the RDS there in the last couple of games, and it was great to see. But, you know, as they do tour the country in the next Six Nations, I mean, get out to Belfast, get out to Cork, um, get out in Dublin, just get there in your droves, I suppose. And I'm very conscious as well that, you know, we're, it's three men talking about the women's team and how to solve it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do I do believe that the people probably um, best in or the most knowledgeable um, in how to solve it are probably those involved in it themselves, you know. But um, look, we'll, we'll move on. Um, the last thing, and we usually only take three questions, but given what happened on Tuesday, I think it is only fair to add in the whole Van Gran um saga um i suppose is probably the best word to put it and have a quick discussion around that so uh, tom i'm going to jump to you first what's your understanding of the timeline uh understanding of the timeline has been shifting quite a bit uh over the last couple of days um well since yesterday really prior to this week uh prior to tuesday uh with the weeks beforehand i was under i was under the impression that van Braun had signed his contract now it wasn't publicly announced but the everything that I had heard and everything that I that I knew suggested to me that the contract was signed. Now, not announced as of yet, but that's not in itself unusual. Um, then I heard the the rumors coming out in mid-November. You probably heard the same about oh, Van Horn's talking to Bath. So that kind of juxtaposed in my head with um, well, that what's he talking to Bath for? He's on contract, right? And that I kind of wrote it off as a result then, where it's just like, oh, wires crossed, you know, people not really getting it, you know, you know how the, you know how it happens. One guy hears one thing and then it goes to the next or whatever. So then those those rumors ended up in the newspapers, they ended up in the rugby paper first, then they ended up in the independent and the 42 and stuff like that. And that had a little bit more credence to them then. So you're kind of thinking, well, what's going on here? Because as far as I'm aware, Johan van Kroon signed up um and then tuesday happened uh where he was announced that he's uh, he's leaving now the, the statement on the monster rugby website was that the contract was at an advanced stage but it has since transpired my understanding of this is the same that his contract was agreed uh in the late part of last season and he signed it in mid-july and what he's actually activated here is an exit clause uh the same one that uh razi used to get out in 2017, ironically, uh, it, that, that led to Van Horn being hired here in the first place. So uh, there's been lots of stuff flying around as to why that was. I mean, Murray Kinsler and others have reported that apparently there's friction between the 1014 group, which is widely publicized now uh, as a group of uh, wealthy monster fans who uh, invest their money, uh, not invest, but they, they, they use it to support monster rugby in a way that goes beyond your average person, which is buying tickets and merch. Uh, to bring in certain guys like R.G. Snaman, Damon E. Lende. Um, that's something that's been going around. I personally find that if that's the, re- if that's the reason that's being floated out there as to why Johan van Kroon has not uh, decided to leave, that to me doesn't make any sense. That to me just seems like nonsense. That's not the Johan van Kroon I know as a fella who grew up in Blue Bulls rugby. His, his father was a CEO of Blue Bulls for many years. So dealing with sponsors and uh, you know, uh, uh, business people attached to the club and wealthy backers or whatever else. That's as much a job of a head coach in the modern age as what it is naming a team and putting the cones out. So that might play a factor in it. I genuinely think that this is a, a confluence of events where 
if he agreed the two-year deal, which he did, and signed it, as I understand that he did, and he's looking to exit now, we're in a situation where, well, why is that? If he signed a new two-year deal. Personally, I think Johan van Kroon is aware that his value at the moment is as high as it'll be for unless something remarkable happens in the next two years. Now, again, we could be looking at a situation where in the, in the Irish system, and people may not be aware of this, uh, if you want to sign a guy like Damien Delende or RG Snaman, or even to re-sign them after you've already contracted them, you can't just do that. You've got to go to the IRFU and David Nusifora to get as much clearance. You have to get clearance to do that and permission, essentially, to sign these guys in the first place and then re-sign them. Whether you can afford them or not, again, you might go to a group of wealthy people. And this is not just a Munster thing. This happens in all the other provinces too. Look at Johnny Sexton. Look at Jamie Heaslip. Their contracts that they signed in 2016 and 2017 when Johnny came back from, from Racing, uh, it was part-funded by Leinster, part-funded by the IRFU, and part-funded by outside private finance. Same with Jamie Heaslip's. So this is not a new scenario or it's just a Munster thing. So this is something that's already in the system. It's, it, it, it's, it's a part that, that, that all the provinces, to a certain extent, have used to bring in players and retain guys. So the idea that, that this would be a kind of a massive factor with Johan deciding that he's going to jack it in, I, to me, that doesn't wash. I don't, I, that to me doesn't not... I, I, the more I was thinking about it afterwards, it just that doesn't sound like Johan van Kroon to me. This is a guy who negotiated a deal to stay, if we're to believe, it around March, April, uh, when Munster had just lost the Pro 14 final to Leinster while playing poorly and also then lost to, uh, to, to, to Toulouse in a quarter final. When the calls for, oh, what's, what's, uh, what's, what are Munster doing under Van Ron? That was nearly when he was most unpopular. I'm, I'm using air quotes here with people looking to try and pin every aspect of Munster's underperformance on him. So the idea of you know criticism or scrutiny or even dealing with spot, like that, that to me is not it. I, I think that if you look at where Bath are at the moment, a wealthy club with, with, with wealthy backers who are playing absolutely terribly at the moment. They're rock bottom in their game, Gallagher Premiership, playing like they're, they're playing like shit. Like when you look at them against uh, Leinster on Saturday, they finished strongly, but that first 30 minutes, they looked like they had no business being out there. So you look at what he can do going over there, he can hardly do any worse than what's, than what's going on there at the moment. They have plenty of money to spend. Uh, you look at certain aspects of the salary cap, you know, you know that's affecting players. But if, if you're bad, and they said this today in their announcement, it's on a long-term deal. He's going to be working under Stuart Hooper, the director of rugby, which means that all of the stuff that's heading his way now over here will not apply over in Bath. Expectations are low over there. He'll be able to sign more or less whoever he wants, play whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Because again, people don't understand that, like that head coaches over here have to deal with the, uh, the IRFU dictating a certain players play certain games. It's not just about, oh, you can't play him for this game. Sometimes it's we've got we need you to play this guy for this game, and, and that's just part of the system. And it works for Ireland. And the thing is, the IRFU they call the shots here because the Irish men's national team is the only province or the only entity here that makes money with regards to the actual professional game. All the provinces, if it wasn't for the IRFU, would be losing money. Even if you look at Leinster, their central contract bill that they have, you know, a lot of their top players on central contracts for uh, with uh, Ireland, if they had to pay those guys. From their provincial budget, it'd be a, like that's a massive expense. So you look at it and go like, where are we with it? And I think that this is Johan understanding that uh, with the opportunity that's there, this is a big opportunity for him to go over and be part of a new project in a great city with his family, earning plenty of money, 
And for me, it's, it's, it, it, it can be as simple as that with maybe other extenuating circumstances, like, you know, dealing with a, an over-enthusiastic guy like that. But again, I think that's just part and parcel. I think that most coaches would be aware of this and have dealt with this even at a lower level. I know I deal with it and I only run a, I only run a rugby website with, with, with patrons. I've had fellas suggesting things to me and they're only spending a tenner a month. So it's like, it's one of those things where you look at it and go, uh, a lot of stuff is going around about this and a lot of and, and stuff that I've heard, I've seen and read, like I've been told the same things. I'm not saying it's not true, but it's just, it's one of those things that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I think what makes more sense is that this is more to do with timing and opportunity and a guy making a clever read of the situation long-term than it is uh, a massive cataclysm happening out of, out of nowhere all of a sudden. There's something you mentioned there, and uh, you know, you, you said you mentioned money, and to me, I don't think, even if it is the reason he's tipping on to bat, I certainly can't begrudge him that because it's a fickle sport at the end of the day, and he has to oh. take care of his family and stuff like that too. So that's the first thing. But one of the biggest problems for me is... And I was only thinking about it today. Larkham announced a long time ago that he was going to tip on back to Australia. Now, that means that Munster are putting out feelers for an attack coach. That attack coach has to suit the head coach and has to suit the the head coach's style of play and how he sees the team going and how he sees the team building. They put in a framework to to, to suit the head coach's image, not vice versa. But suddenly now there's no head coach. Do you park looking for an attack coach while you now search for a head coach do you do both at the same time do you continue looking for an attack coach hoping that he's just going to gel or that she's going to gel with the with the head coach i think it, it is a difficult position for munster to be in um i'm not going to mention Ferreira because i mean you know we don't like dealing in rumors and stuff like that but if he did choose to tip on as well uh, he's out of contract that's suddenly three coaches munster are looking for I pray to God that Roundtree um, loves the club as much as he says he does, you know, proper club and all that. And he wants to stay and hopefully he does. But I think the fact that, you know, they were so far gone in the contract details that suddenly now that they have to look for a head coach as well as an attack coach, I think it just adds an extra spanner in the works that I I don't think many fans were expecting. Um, You know, and, and we did hear the rumors about Bath for a while, like in, no, I've been getting DMs on from people on Twitter saying he's gone to bat, he's gone to bat. Again, don't deal in rumors, never have, never will. But you know, suddenly when it is an actual thing, it, it does leave a big gap to to be filled. Um, and not just in the head coach's shoes, but also the attack coach's shoes, and they have to pair up well together too. But with him leaving, you know, it's a done deal, and you can compliment bat, I suppose, as much as you want and managing to to get a contract together, negotiate it, and get it across and signed in less than twenty four hours. Uh, they did some brilliant business there. But um, Owen, who do you see coming in to replace him? Well, just first of all, just going back there slightly, I think the most disappointing thing out of this whole whole lot is, as you say, no one begrudges anyone moving, um, to get a better deal, move for family reasons, whatever it is. But I think you, you've got to make sure that there's some level of communication and honesty within that. So if you're if you're in a situation where you're going ahead and you're doing that and it suddenly comes out of the blue, if that is the case, as you said, that puts Munster in a terrible situation where they thought as part of nine months ago, they had a, they had it all sewn up. They thought they had a problem then with Larkham that they had to replace him and that was one person. But now you're going to a situation where you're looking at three coaches that potentially if because jp came with him as a as a package you know you have to look at the possibility that he will be leaving as well and hopefully that will be clarified in the in the next couple of weeks but you're now looking at three at three people to come in you're looking at it in a bad timing 
because you're looking you're now looking at a situation as we said look a lot of this should have been sorted and should have been started looking at six nine months ago if you had the situation so many so many of the candidates are now under contract if this was the point would you would they and potentially would they have gone to raj back then before raj was announced as taking over from john O'Gibbs? You know, you look at so many things there, the what ifs within that now. But I think we are where we are in terms of Van Gran leaving and it being announced and sort of the whole deal getting signed off with Bath very quickly. So, I mean, you know, we'll put that in air quotes for the, for the time being. But I think like you've got to look at who they can get in. I think we're, we're focused on the, the sort of the Irish sort of and maybe ex monster guys coming in. I think, you know, there is there'll always be someone talking, I think, about sort of maybe Stuart Lancaster and is he back up potentially for, for taking a top job again? We've seen that before and even the likes of Alan Gaffney. I'm not sure I see that happening. I think he's quite settled in Leinster. I think um, for me, I would love to see someone like Mike Prendergast come in and take over as a sort of a head coach, but maybe w- with more of a sort of a director of rugby above him. You're looking at sort of I think um, a defence coach, if you're looking at that, someone I think the Munster have maybe looked at before would be Dave Wessels, uh, the South African who's, who's worked in Australia. I think he could be a, a very good guy. I, I don't think he's actually coaching with anyone at the, at the moment uh, and could be available. So I think there, there's lots of options as well out there. But, you know, it's, it's not an ideal situation. And I think Munster are now sort of on the back foot as they as they try to do this and i only hope that they can get the right guys in place and that there is the the support there from the irfu to get them the the right people because we've had i think is it six this will be the sixth or seventh sixth head coach in the in the last sort of 10 11 years um that sort of level of change doesn't work for an organization and they've got to make sure that this one is the right one and is in there for the long term I, I think genuinely, though, like if you look at the guys who they were looking at to replace Larkham, I think they would have been looking at guys of a certain stature anyway, where you might just you might not have to do all that much of a tweak to actually get the right guy here. Because if, again, if they're looking at the the guys who were rumored, and there's lots of names rumored, I won't go into them now. But you'd be looking at guys of a certain stature anyway. I, I, I'm not sure if they were literally going to go look for an, an actual just an attack coach. I'm not sure if that was the business they were going to do to replace Larkham anyway. But I, I think even with, 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 with Johan, I, I think he's a guy who, he is an honourable guy. And I think that there's elements of this where you look at the timing of the announcement yesterday and then Bat's announcement today. And I, I, I was thinking earlier that, Jesus, this, this doesn't look good. But I think that's just a case of two things colliding at once. I think it is possible that like that you look at Bath, you know, we're more than likely saying here, look, and they, they, they came in for Johan before, I believe, back around the time of his uh, last renewal, um, where it's, it's a good environment for him to go. And I think that, you know, I'm at the point now looking at it today where I'm thinking at this as much of a shock as it is. Is it not something that like that is for the best, really, when you think about it? You look at, uh, you know, where a monster would be in two years. Say Johan didn't execute this six-month clause. In two years' time, like, do, do any of you lads see a situation unless monster win a European Cup between now and then or a URC between now and then? That, that, that Johan would get renewed at the same level. I, I, I personally don't. Not after a, a World Cup where there's going to be a lot of international coaches available, maybe even Ronald O'Gara, although I've yet to be convinced that, that he's going to be coming here anytime soon. But like you look at the, at, at the I suppose, the longer-term picture of it, is it something that is 
sensible from his position, but also from a monster position? Is it something that, you know, when you look at it over the, in the, the bigger picture, I suppose, is it something that allows the kind of uh, development on after five years of, of your, which again, which is a long time for a coach in the modern era for him to be the, the main man. Is it something that ultimately, it, was it something that was nearly needed as, as inconvenient as it is? When you look at it from a perspective now after, is it something that was, uh, that isn't necessarily as bad as what it might seem in the face of it? I think, Tom, just on that, I think, look, as you said, there's going to be change anyway in terms of Larkham going and it's possibly best that this is sort of just take the plaster off in one go. Um, if there is going to be change and we're going to see some sort of a new sort of Baxter attack coach come in, that we're going to have that level of change. I would have preferred some level of stability, I think, within the coaching team to continue it on. Even for a while, I think Munster need that due to the changes that have happened over the last... That, that, is, that so. is true. Yeah, that is true. I think it's um, going to be one that's going to be interesting to watch either way. Um, I'm going to actually interrupt you there fellas so we, we leave that there i think we've we've probably spoken about it uh enough to be honest with you um but listen folks thanks a million for joining in again tonight um for provincial state of mind if you enjoyed the episode feel free to tell a friend um you can find us on social media on twitter and you, of course you know all our handles by now as well so you can find us there too thanks a million for listening and we'll see you next week